Welcome to the Omfed Podcast. Hello and welcome to the OMFIF podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute here at OMFIF. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Gareth Owens, Humanitarian Director for Save the Children UK, and Simon Inglis, a partner at EY. Uh, We're going to be talking about the topic of grant management uh, and how technology can uh, improve uh, delivery and and oversight and transparency there. Uh, Gareth, do you want to tell us a little bit about your involvement with uh, with this area? So, yeah, so as the humanitarian director for Save the Children UK, I oversee all our emergency disaster response work uh, worldwide. And a big part of my role is to help raise substantial amounts of funding from multiple sources, uh, including the British public, government, private philanthropy and the private sector to support our emergency responses, uh, whether that be natural disasters or conflicts around the world. And there has been a huge rise in the number of people needing humanitarian assistance over the past few years as a result of uh, everything people are aware of, climate change, uh, increased conflict, the after effects of COVID COVID and um, economic crisis. And so the importance of accountability and transparency has never really been any higher than it is now, hence the interest in this subject. Thank you. Yeah, as you say, uh, a really important time and uh, yeah, a lot of important work being done. Uh, Simon, what about you? Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with, the, with this topic? Uh, certainly, Lewis. So so I lead um, EY's Grant and Relief Fund Managed Service globally, but I've been involved in grants now for the past 20 or so years. I, and and I think as grants have become more more and more important to governments in achieving their fiscal their, their, their goals and this is in fact the primary fiscal tool that they, governments are using post-covid to to reach those goals whether they be humanitarian or climate environmental or even economic goals i've become a bit of an evangelist frankly on looking creating more transparency in grants more efficiency i'm trying to really focusing people on maximizing the impact of those grants and to do that technology plays and a fundamental role in that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that um, that we're hearing across a lot of different sectors that the <clears throat> the expectations are are higher and uh, and technology is a big part of delivering on those. Um, Gareth, with with your work at Save the Children UK, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know transparency and accountability? You know who who you have to deliver that to, what what that looks like, and and what are some of the the biggest challenges in in making sure you're you're delivering that? Yeah, sure. I mean, transparency and accountability have always been absolutely central to how any aid organisation like Save the Children operates. And of course, we're first and foremost accountable to the people we seek to help. So, in in the case of the Save the Children organisation worldwide, that was forty three million children uh, around the world in twenty twenty two. But we're also, of course, accountable to hundreds of thousands of supporters who give us money. Um, and in today's super connected world, uh, of especially social media driven, there is understandably a lot of scrutiny and skepticism towards you know, the effective use of, of charitable donations. Uh, and the 21st century has also seen a huge rise in 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 risk and compliance requirements placed on aid agencies so today we have to take into account uh, everything from anti-terrorism and anti-fraud legislation data protection and safeguarding regulations 
all of which is necessary in terms of accountability and accountability and transparency but it does place a very heavy bureaucratic burden on the operations of uh, organizations like my own and of course in certain settings uh, places like afghanistan somalia syria and indeed uh, the occupied palestinian territories which have been in the news of course there are prescribed parties present or indeed in control of areas and so these are organizations that are listed as terrorist groups and therefore banned and subject to sanctions so working in these kind of settings requires specific humanitarian exemptions which places even greater challenges on transparency and accountability and then that's before we think about our our local partner organizations who we have to consider as well who are often recipients of grant funding and are also required to meet the same stringent standards of accountability so so all in all the reality is that humanitarian aid agencies like save the children i mean we're generally working in the least ideal settings and we still have to meet the highest possible standards and we also have to take risks to bring help to children in need in the direst of circumstances so the stakes are inevitably very high in terms of accountability and uh, transparency all round yeah that's uh yeah a, a huge challenge i can imagine um simon is you know what what gareth is describing is that something are, are these problems kind of generally applicable across the grant the grant space or uh, are there other kind of unique considerations no i think i think i, th- I think they're generally applicable in but in different measures in different in different areas i think the concept of the prescribed actor those we can't we can't fund the the impact the people we want to give money to or or or, or goods to 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 have an impact but also there's a threat from bad actors the threat actors in this space these are the people who see opportunity to, to make money frankly or or to under undermine um goals which which, which obviously the things that for save the children is slightly different from if you're if you're a government trying to um, issue COVID recovery grants, but uh, we've seen that those threat actors have become more mature, and they've evolved very rapidly to become highly effective organisations, and that really is requiring a change of focus and change of mindset within the granting the granting bodies that they have to be equally agile. When 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 they spot a threat, to be able to change to it, the technology change with it, and so that we can respond very rapidly uh, and maintain the focus on impact and not get and not get bogged down in focusing on protecting, so we don't take advantage of those op- opportunities that are out there and the, and the needs that genuinely exist. Mm. Yeah, yeah, maintaining that focus on impact must be must be very difficult in the context of the that uh, operational burden of just uh, delivering on uh on all those expectations and uh a lot of boxes to tick and uh hoops to jump through but but very important uh nonetheless um, uh, absolutely sorry Liz. and i think i think coming from that we have to focus on reducing the friction in the system so that you know we get more money through the system and we create more money to go through the system but at the same time by keeping that focus on the impact you know focusing on better always being better and not and not getting bogged down in being best, because that's where we we lose time out and actually we lose effectiveness. Mm. Um, just related to that, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, when you're looking at sources of funding. Uh, you know, speaking to to people who, uh, you know, on the other side of this, you know, sometimes investors or you know ethical investors, things like that. 
Um, they often have quite strict uh, limitations on where they can invest, and a lot of those come down to uh, come down to the type of transparency they can receive. Um, so I guess uh, you know a lot of the the fund the fundraising side of thing when you're when you're looking for for grants, uh, Gareth must come down to being able to give uh, the donors uh, confidence that uh, that the money is going to be used in the way that you expect. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, in the case of Save the Children, you know, we're a hundred-year-old charity, we're one of the oldest mm-hmm. humanitarian organisations in the world. So you have long-standing relationships with a lot of your your key supporters, and of course, uh, you know, there's a there's a big measure of trust uh, inherent in that. But we, you know, we 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 seek maximum maximum transparency across it because of this. You know this notion of that's that's the that's an entitlement of someone who's supporting us, um, and it is getting it is you know the, it 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 is increasing. The level of scrutiny is definitely increasing, and alongside that, the level of quite stringent requirement in the way that you're you're suggesting to for the management, the process management, the impact, the KPIs, the outcome, all of that is all of that is a you know is it, it's it is burdensome it is necessary and often it's it's something that's negotiated up front as you develop a you know a you know a partnership a grant making partnership but it you know it it often it comes with a cost so you know so the challenge often to you know our donors is well we keep the overhead down <laughs> the maximum amount of money going you know for maximum impact on the front line as it were in my case you know, in humanitarian emergencies, but please also meet all these stringent requirements. <laughs> Is that well, you're you're going to have to pay for that. Somebody's going to have to pay for the bureaucracy. You know that goes alongside that. So you know we have very extensive, um, you know, process management. You know, elaborate systems that are pe- that still are still run by people. You know, there's a lot of subjectivity still in there. There's a lot of human decision making in there. Yes, you can automate a fair amount of that, and maybe mm. artificial. You know, there's sort of People sort of say, "Well, artificial intelligence is going to take care of a lot of all this," but it, you know, we, I'm in the I'm in the human connection and hope business, you know, and that's a, that's we're ne- you, we're never going to remove humans from but from what we're trying to trying to do. But so the more the more you can automate, the more you can create frictionless systems. As Simon's, you know, um, you know that's his area of work. The more you remove the sort of inertial effect of all that. The better, because it takes time, it takes money, and it and it creates the other thing. I think that's often underestimated that I see. I mean, I'm old enough and to have started my humanitarian career in an era where there was far less. I mean, thirty plus years ago, where there was far less, uh, you know, paperwork in all honesty involved, which meant you you did spend the majority of your time focused on on achieving the you know with the communities you're trying to help on impact and less time thinking through the the grant management aspect and but what you see now is there is a there is you know in institutions headquarters there are large machines which are basically technocracies where, and people who work in technocracies think in a think in a technocratic way about things whereas what i do for a living is is emotion based it's human human uh, you know, challenges in difficult circumstances, and you all, you want all the grant management side just to happen. You know that you don't want yeah. to spend time working through that. You just want to be with the people and and work through their issues. You know. Um, can I ask what what has kind of driven that that change? I mean, it's certainly something that we've seen happen in the financial industry with the sustainable finance and green bonds and so on. But this sounds like a a broader, more secular trend. 
I, I would go back to sort of new public management uh, trends, you know, introduced, you know, through sort of the kind of near manager <laughs> mindsets of, you know, uh, in the 80s. It was embraced very, you know, that kind of thinking was embraced hugely in the aid sector. But we end up with sort of both, in some ways we end up with the worst of both worlds. We ended up with all the all the, all the the leadership management responsibility, but also money that, that inevitably always came with huge amounts of uh, of compliance, you know, red tape. So you end, so you, so that 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 has sort of doubled down on the challenge, you know, in 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 the sort of era. And as we've seen aid expand in the twenty first century, uh, aid budgets, you know, humanitarian budgets as need has grown, so so this kind of uh, you know level of scrutiny has increased. In fact, it was Professor Michael Power from the LSE who wrote a paper, I think, in uh, in two thousand and four, calling it the kind of new imperialism was this kind of the new imperialism of internal control around risk and compliance, which yeah. goes far beyond aid. Mm. Well, he wrote a paper on that in 2004, and 20 years later, it is much, it's much heavier. Um, yeah. So it is a trend that we, we're, all, we're all contending with, I think, you know, in, in modernity, if uh, that's a, quite an expansive answer, but that's really what I see. Yeah, no, I think... Uh, I, yeah. no, I think, Lewis, there's, there's a combination of the sums have grown, but also the, the external visibility of how money is used has also become more much more um much easier to communicate and the world the world the world focuses on the errors we see it in we see it in aid but we also see it in local what local public services 98 percent of things can go well but if there's two percent that goes wrong that's where the focus goes and so we have to you know the ability to demonstrate that you've taken all the right done and gone through all the right steps and it's still gone wrong it's it's a you know, it's partly human nature, but we have to therefore, I think, just, you know, we can't, we can't, we can't change human nature. People want things to go right and they will focus on the things that don't go well, but we need to be able to remove that, the overhead and the burden in the system so we can do those things without needing an army of people in head office to process those things. Mm-hmm. We also have to trust, I think, and, you know, Gareth, you and I, I think we're both on the CALP meeting um, launch earlier in the week. We also have to trust there's an element you have to trust people to do the right thing for themselves and in some markets. So we have to build on that whilst ensuring that those bad acts, those, those threat actors I referred to, I don't ever get the upper hand in this. I think I think one of the things that I, I observe in all this is the kind of subtle chilling effect it can have, you know, on ambition. Um, and, you know, you see at board level of charities necessarily a lot of people with expertise in risk management <laughs> sit on the boards of charities. Um, but I take risk for a living in the name of you know, children in need and residual risk will be what it will be. If the need is great enough, we will take it. So you can't eliminate it. And no one is suggesting we do that in our boards. They understand the nature of the organization we are. But you can see you know, subtle questioning of certain types of endeavor when you, and, and, and it's not that people would stop you. It's just that it takes time to convince people. And that's time that we're in, in precious time, especially in certain circumstances, the need to consult, you know, on, on risk parameters when you should be acting uh, mm-hmm. is, is very, is very big now. And it can, it can, it has a, it has a chilling effect that that is poorly understood, I think, but very, very apparent at times, especially when we're dealing with the more risky element of what we do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, well, I, it sounds like, uh, you know, pushing against this trend of greater scrutiny and emphasis on risk management is unlikely. You know, it's, as you say, it's a very well embedded trend. 
so let's talk a little bit about uh, opportunities for reducing the operational overhead that it demands. Um, yeah, uh, well, maybe I'll just leave that open. Uh, Simon, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, you know anything you've seen sort of broadly in the space that is reducing that kind of overhead? I, I think you know I talked about the podcast is about technology, and th and that's going to play uh, an increasingly important role in removing the friction and allowing us to focus on the impact and also allowing us to be agile in 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 that if i look at the work we're, we're doing we're, we're looking at the block at the blockchain and how tokenization of of money allows us to effectively remove intermediaries not not from the process but from the handling of that money so that an organization at the top of the chain isn't how passing money down and everyone taking their bit as it goes and they have a free hand to take as much as they need as it goes through but actually the bulk of the money goes straight to the end recipient and it, and it hasn't passed through six banks on the way and i'm i've got a particular interest in and in how we would um organize um transparency in ukraine and we don't want money passing through different sets of hands because there's always that creates opportunity if you have a, a tokenized system you know the bulk of the money can can be released once the evidence has been collected and it's there and you've got you've got sight of where it is at all times. I think that's going to be really important. I see huge opportunities for automation and intelligence automation. And we're starting to explore and understand the impact that AI, and you mentioned this earlier, Gary, I think AI is going to have, you know, using generative AI to assess applications, to remove the need for every application to be scrutinized in great detail by any by human. That will speed up the process and the, but not just faster processing but allow us to change and evolve faster as well and if that if that evolution is as important as being efficient and those are the things i think are going to transform the the, the administrative burden on grants i think i mean this is this is much more simon's area of expertise um, than mine but the well simon referred earlier to calp calp is the cash learning partnership which is a big initiative across the sector uh, the aid sector for promoting the use of what's called multi-purpose cash and literally giving people money you know 30 years ago uh, it was seen as a very risky thing to do to actually hand out money to people you know in in humanitarian need because the assumption erroneously was that they would you know not spend it in a in a, in a useful way and of course that was a you know, nonsense you know many studies and research have shown that people are more than able to make good decisions for themselves and their families uh, when they're given the agency to do that so there has been a huge growth in the use of cash literally giving out money uh you know to to targeted populations in need and of course as people migrate that's much more uh, the efficacy of that is is obvious as people are going across borders and moving and we've seen that in ukraine and elsewhere um and so, and and it's 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 about twenty percent, I think, it's the current number of of the total volume of humanitarian aid is given in the form of cash, and it's anticipated that that could go as high as fifty percent. So half of all the all the aid money given in humanitarian situations, and indeed in longer term work as well, could be in the form of cash. And so that creates this big driver, I think, uh, because the technology has to keep pace um, and has to get ever more robust. And especially back to what I was saying about some of the more difficult sit settings where you've got prescribed parties, we have to have to show end user <laughs> end yeah. users received it in in that way. And so I think there's huge there's huge scope there. But what needs to happen is is the kind of partnerships that you know that are developing between private sector expertise of the of the kind that Simon you know uh, represents and and frontline aid agencies who sort of know the communities and what they will need. And as we build these partnerships, I think that's 
there i think there's tremendous opportunity to drive innovation big charities though we may be substantial we you know money to spend on innovation and and techno technological innovation is limited so we you know we look to our partnerships around the world for for support in that and i can remember being introduced to blockchain a few years ago by the uh, marketing director of a of a blockchain company he was about 19 and i didn't understand a word he had to say and i'm sorry to be cliched about i'm not making a cliche but the point being that you know decision makers are more of my generation still and they will need an awful lot of uh, you know hand holding and um and kind of explanation in order to understand the technology or or at least not to know to trust it you know i think that yeah. hu human reality kicks in in these circumstances that's coming i think already though simon probably knows more about that but i think yeah. that we'll see that area develop very quickly i think in the next few years yeah it's been very interesting i think uh you know i've been following blockchain projects for a while and early on you know people blockchain proponents would just talk about it being potentially revolutionary revolutionary for everything yeah and, uh but they wouldn't really go into any more detail than that and uh it kind of took a few years for you know people uh to get to grips with it understand the use cases understand where it can actually make an impact and uh as as both of you said i think that is starting to come through now and i think sorry yeah. I remember asking uh, that particular uh, marketing director from a blockchain. So, so who are the people who see your your amazing sort of all, all court solution to life? Uh, who see that as a threat? And the answer was banks and and governments. And I said, well, governments have have armies and tanks and planes. <laughs> yeah, they sound like pretty formidable people who are threatened by what you're suggesting. Uh, so yeah, that naivety factor. I'm, but, you know, I think that obviously Simon can speak to this. Things will have moved on a lot now. I know that blockchain is something that you're more familiar with. And we start to see it in, you know, in, in the systems of sort of data capture that are out there in, in aid operations. But one of the big things is interoperability, you know, what data sets between different agencies, who's holding data, who's sharing data, what are the legalities, what are the ethics of all that? Those areas are still sort of very, very much on the table as things to work through as we see this expansion happen. Yeah, building a, a really robust framework for data management is something that we've uh, uh, that we've encountered as a problem a lot. We talked to a lot of central banks about it, and uh, I interviewed about twelve of them, and eleven of them said they were in the process of overhauling their uh, their data management because it just uh, you know it, until relatively recently it just kind of grew up organically, and every department would do things their own way. And that, this isn't just a problem for central banks, right? Every participant in you know, the grant recipient uh, and all the delivery agents and everyone is using their own systems, doing things their own way with no uh, uh, no means for these things to to communicate. Uh, Simon, that was probably a problem that you have been uh, grappling with for a while. I completely. And I think if we're talking about that, you know, data, data's great, but we what we have to use that data for is to create knowledge. Uh, and, you know, we have data in the granting systems, we have data in public finance systems, We've got the central banks have got their, their economic data. It's a, how we bring that together in, and understand that is how we will eventually measure impact. You know, uh, without without being able to get that data um, and bring it together into a, and develop those common views, we we never really understand impact. Someone in humanitarian space, it's it is slightly more visceral. Someone has money, they can buy food. But what, what that doesn't necessarily tell, tell you, it tells you an individual is no longer hungry. What we on, we need to understand is whether a community is growing and is developing an economic economic power that, that, that it will no longer revert back to needing humanitarian aid. And by bringing those measures together, 
I think we will spot the opportunities to invest for longer term sustainable change. So, you know, and we see this in climate change, doing the ESG funds. I've, you know, I've invested in reforestation to sequester some of my carbon. And we've seen it in the news in the last 10 days, but actually the, the, those forests have not, they may have been planted, but they've died. They've not been tended. So the carbon hasn't been sequestered as planned. That money has um, not been well spent in that in that respect, but we haven't got the mechanisms to bring that that information back in to report on it and in real time and understand where that investment is going and whether that investment is delivering the impact it needs to. But we have now, we are developing as, as, an, as an industry, we're developing the technology to bring those data sets together, bring the geospatial, bring the economic data out of the central banks, it, tying that back into grants, granting relief fund data to understand how the impact is being delivered and the direction of movement we have on that impact. This, yeah. this, this point about you know, data becoming knowledge, becoming wisdom, that, that that that's really really important you know i see i see quite a lot of fetishization of data going on if i'm honest um and alongside that an awful lot of cognitive overload um data presented in ways that are just almost you know too much you know I, I, where just simple human band, reasoning and bandwidth is just overloaded by by it so so you lose so he's you know and then people if you ask questions when you scrutinize that go deeper, you know, what's the, what's the meaning behind, you know, you can see that actually often it's not there, you know, so this, this is something I think it feels like a transitionary evolutionary thing to the point where it, you know, it, we, you know, we're always talking inside my organization about management information and data. <laughs> um, and is it driving, you know, is it driving, you know, wise action fully yet? I, I was, I'm questioning that a bit at the moment. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I think, um, I mean, the you know we've talked a little bit about there. There's some operational efficiencies to be gained from you know uh, smoothing the process of of money being dispersed from a budgetary authority down to the delivery agent and uh, making sure that you know that that happens nice and seamlessly. But the impact data coming the other way to kind of inform policy that. Uh, it's much more complicated to make use of that productively than than just operational efficiency, right? There has to be processes around that built in to uh, to understand that and to make you know make productive use of the information that's gathered. There's also, and this is very germane now in in the aid sector in general, is the sort of issue of power and who you know and shifting power towards to, down, downwards, as it were, towards communities. This is this is the big debate. And, you know, um, because it's a question of legitimacy of action and it's a question, you know, questions, big questions around coloniality and history and all these things that are bound up in this. And if power doesn't, you know, if we create, if we just centralise power in the all-knowing eye of the sort of the data, you know, then, then we're not doing anything that, that people think is progress. So so these things, they're the very human aspects that sit around all, all these techno technological kind of, Pro progressivist mindsets um and if they don't if we don't use use that in the right way then i think we, we you know we risk undermining you know what people want to see which is is agency shift to you know the front line where people you know where people were all this aid someone to, to take control of their own life and not to be beholding to you know some a higher power somewhere else that can have 
all manner of reasons for wanting to hold on to power. Yeah, and I think as I look across the different industries, obviously um, that that agency is important that we maintain it, and and the locality, that, that localization. If we look in reconstruction of Ukraine, there's a big drive from civic society in Ukraine for the decisions to be made locally because they know where they need hospitals they know near where they need schools locally that's not something that you know in kiev but where where the state comes in uh, and that that information that that flow of information back if we, look, if we look in the uk rolling out of heat pumps and the funding of heat pump grants hasn't been hugely successful but part of that is because we don't have a supply chain but people don't know where to apply and that's where the state can come step in to, to facilitate those it more it's more of a facilitation you've got we get the information we know we need to create a market for this we can then act uh, and we can retarget perhaps retarget some of the funding into training rather than in installation so that we we create we create the supply chains to deliver on the the change and create the impact we want it's a humanitarian space and we talked about this before gareth is really trying to build that capacity in 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 the locality to move people out of poverty and keep them out of poverty. We don't want to have to keep revisiting the humanitarian end of this. We want them to start creating a virtuous cycle and creating the capacity and the capability to do that, I think is where that data helps us create insight and provide that insight to the people on the ground, to their, their local areas so that, that they can then act in the best way that they can. I, I certainly don't think that, we, that a sort of all seeing eye in the center telling everyone what to do works ever. Um, because as soon as you get out of Washington, out of London, the world is different. And you know that's that's in the UK, that's in the US, let alone over the borders into the um, into Ukraine or or any other areas, or Turkey or Libya, where we're you know huge reconstruction efforts going on. You know, that all needs to be decided upon locally. Hundred percent, and and but also it's exciting to think how data management can help be efficient you know in targeting of you know and, and real a few years ago I, I remember uh in the haiti earthquake it was kind of it was it was 2010 and it was kind of the first emergency where we really saw social media and technology people literally would phone in where they were and some some of those people might be trapped so and and there were helplines set up uh and people said send us information uh, as a, uh, but the but the ability to process it wasn't there you know it was it outstripped people there was such an inundation of of human kind of you know kind of response to that i'm stuck here i need help there it, the, the back office couldn't it, there wasn't a system that could process that now you can imagine today 10 getting on 15 years later that would be handled much more differently and agents there are some organizations who work within the humanitarian sector is starting to sort of assist in you know, the big agencies with that sort of thing and then then you've got a system that's very agile in the moment um but also what's learned in the moment of crisis that lends itself to the longer term becomes becomes very interesting in relation to okay well where are we seeing sort of you know the heat maps of activity what's going on you can see how 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 sort of big data in that sense could become very very powerful very quickly i think it's just it, you know it's just it's still relatively new all that i think um but but you can there's a lot of creative minds looking at this sort of thing now in the aid sector and i can only hope to sort of uh, still be around to see it all you know bring it bring about that kind of really dynamic you know responsiveness that i think you're suggesting simon because i think that's absolutely possible um and, yeah, and localization. well yeah quite because we have the information in the center doesn't mean we keep it in the center 
the, 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 the new tools allow these decisions to, you know, this information and the and provide the, the facility to local out to the locality um, so that you don't have to have someone in the center always doing all the processing. It can be delegated down. It can be delegated down through the um, recipient chain so that but you're still collecting the data in one place. I think that's really yeah. important. You know, you know, going back to the, the talking about using the sort of smart contracts in the chain is you don't you don't have to centralize for transparency. You can have decisions made three or four three or four levels down and that down the sort of the um the funding chain, but that's transparently done and the information is shared back up so that not only do you see why and what. But but the people on the ground are making those decisions, and you can find out if that decision, if that decision make, if that decision in that locality is relevant somewhere else. So we're starting to be able to share the information. You don't find people stuck in their their little their, their, their geographies not sharing the information. And I think that's a huge opportunity. It's all kind of like you know a more controlled flow of information that we get with social media. Yeah, yeah, it's been really you know across the the last year doing this project, I've had. A, examples of both right where decision making at the central level is more efficient and and somewhere decision making as you say at the local level is more important and uh it's not uh obvious superficially which is going to be the case unless you have the means to gather that data effectively and it and it's able to flow between those parties uh efficiently and uh often um you know creating often you know, managing that flow of data is so uh, burdensome operationally that it, it negates any efficiency that you would have uh, from uh, from doing it. So you need to have a system in place that means that can happen uh, easily and seamlessly. Absolutely, and adapt. Uh, adapt adaption. We we are too often see grant programs set up for five years, and I'd love to see them being able to, re, you know, roll, roll roll with the punches, adapt. And refocus and 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 really focus on what worked and then stop doing what didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, and if it meant moving a decision process, then it should. But we have to have the data to justify the decision, and then we have to have the systems to that, that are capable of adapting. And I don't mean when I say systems, I don't necessarily mean technology. I mean, mm -hmm. mean you know, the whole system needs to be able to capable of adapting quickly to to the opportunity or potentially the threat. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm afraid we are running out of time. It's a fascinating topic. I'm sure we could keep talking about it for, for a lot longer, but um, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, yeah, great to have you, Gareth. Great to have you, Simon. Thank you very much, Liz. Thanks so much. This podcast is part of a series that we have been conducting alongside EY uh, on public finance management and the importance of technology in delivering operational efficiencies and improving policy formulation uh, with better data management. A lot of the themes that we've touched on today. Uh, we are producing a report on this, the second report in this series that will be released uh, today, December 5th. Uh, and you can check that out on our website on fifth.org. Much more to come in this area and many others. So keep an eye on our website on fifth.org where you can see commentaries, uh, more podcasts, upcoming events, uh, and our reports as well. Uh, you can follow us on Spotify and Podbean uh, and check out our LinkedIn and Twitter pages as well. Uh, thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.